Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Well, welcome back, Ben. We are going over sections 98 through 101, but I think I think both of us were so fixated on section 98 that we kind of forgot we were going to do <laughs> 90, 99 and 100 and 101. And so for me, I was scrambling this afternoon, just, just like, oh yeah, I forgot, I forgot, I forgot. And then come to find out, it sounds like you forgot too. Yeah, I mostly focused on 98 and had it in my head that it this one was on 98. So we'll discuss 99, 100, 101, which looking back on it, maybe we could focus more on those sections than 98 since we've already done at least one, uh, one and a half podcasts on section 98 just by itself. So we've already talked for hours about this section. <laughs> and here we go. We're going to talk more about it. So. Here we go again, right? It, I mean, it always bears, you know, it's always good to, to listen to it again, but no, yeah, so section 98 is a, a fascinating section in church history and in doctrine and what it has to say, and, and especially for Latter-day Peace studies in as we're talking about war and, and, and how to interact with people and how to uh, interact with aggressors and, and what is this government thing and, and why did God tell us to befriend the Constitution? Anyway, there's something in this for everyone, um, renouncing war and proclaiming peace. Um, but yeah, we're definitely, I think we're going to spend more time on 98 and 101. We're going to mention 99 and 100. Uh, might just commit <laughs> everyone just to go read it and kind of get filled in. There's some good stuff in, uh, in 99 and 100, but, uh, I, I know we're going to spend the bulk of our time elsewhere. But so section 98, these are, so th- these are all given in, in really tenuous times, uh, going on because in Missouri, we have, this is where the persecution, the first wave of persecution really starts to arise. And we have W.W. Phelps. We're going to talk about a little bit about the, the printing press fiasco and about some of the history that was going on that had caused bad relationships in Missouri between the Latter-day Saints and their Missouri neighbors. And, and, and as to why Section 98 becomes so important. Now, this is in August when Joseph Smith gives Section 98, which is fascinating because he really wouldn't have been able to know all of the, everything that's going on in Missouri when he reveals this or when this comes about. So this is an interesting thing that Joseph doesn't quite yet know just the state of affairs yet, but he's going to know really quick. And so Section 98 will take in a little bit of a different uh, tone because of that. Now we get into Section 99 and that does to John Murdoch and into Section 100, which is given there to uh, Joseph Smith and Sidney Rigdon as, as they were on a mission. And then Section 101 comes along in the end of 1833 by the time that Joseph knows about all the persecutions and, and all the saints are being forced from Jackson County. A lot of them are landing in Clay County, and from Clay County, they'll eventually find their home the next year in 1834 in Caldwell. Alexander Donovan is really one of the the really cool figures in this history, and he's not a Latter-day Saint. He's a member of Congress at the time. He'll later become a prominent figure in the militia when the Saints have their skirmish in 1838, the war, you know, the skirmish, 
the all-out war, basically war with uh, with the Missouri militia. And so Donovan's going to feature heavily in the Mormon narrative and how this is going to, to come about. But Section 101 is really going to take in kind of this lament at the persecutions and you know, God coming down and talking to the people about, and so we have to see, see them at, to the saints who are being displaced from their area. And we're going to have some hope for them and, and just, just a lot of things to say in section 101 and, and we'll finally get there. But, you know, just to start off with here in section 98, now, Ben, this, this is a really big go-to because you and I have both been heavily involved in political theory. Um, man, when we, when we first met, what, 15, 16, 17 years, however long it's been, years ago, we would, we, you know, you and I and, and I grew up with your cousin Royal in, in mm-hmm. Tennessee and we met because he recruited me to come sell pest control and he recruited you to come sell pest. So we met selling pest control, right? And to know Royal, your cousin, my friend and, and, uh, and your cousin, he's also very political and, and he likes a good debate. And so we, we would sit around and debate these things all the time. And then I was married and, and you and Royal would, would also be married there within the next, uh, four to six months from that first summer we were all together. And, and from there, it was years and years of just late night conversations with our families, just arguing politics. <laughs> and so, yeah. and so these scriptures would always come out, you know, so. So, you know, you have section 58, you have section 98, you have section 101, you have section 134. These, these are all the main sections that talk about government and the constitution and the importance of the constitution. And, and, you know, we, we, we would pour over what these meant and take it back to the Book of Mormon and then take that back to the constitutional studies and early American studies. And, and so those are really good memories for me. So we have a lot to say here about the constitution, but also as we, as I've progressed, and and I know as you progressed, we've done a lot of podcasts on this. You know, at first we were doing it with LDS Liberty, and then we evolved here into into Latter Day Peace Studies, and we kind of moved away from the politics and more towards this, seeing our liberty and freedom not from Washington D.C. but from Gethsemane, right? We used to talk I'll talk about that quite a bit. Yeah. So I find that section ninety eight is really interesting because it does bridge those two conversations effortlessly. And so I when I see section ninety eight for me, it's it's almost like a template for my my life over the last fifteen years. It started with politics and it ended with this this thing about how to establish peace and how to deal with with confrontation. So so right. I have a lot of love for ninety eight there. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about how 98 kind of weaves together a lot of Latter-day Saint themes, you know, starting with the Constitution and and then how to deal with conflict. And then what is this, you know, how do we integrate this Christianity and idea of, of nonviolence and, and, and Christ and forgiveness and, and so forth like that? And then establish Zion. And so it kind of weaves these concepts together. And really depending on what you want to put your focus on, you can you can kind of pull out from it whatever you really want to pull from it. I do like how you talked about how it kind of kind of moves along this uh this progression from sort of a civics-based discussion into a more moral uh, personal moral, and then expands back out to a societal moral, and basically uh, positing at the end uh, a template for Zion. And so, it, yeah, it's a very interesting progression with the way that this section goes on that. 
Yeah, it really is. It really is. You know, when we used to talk about uh, politics a lot, one, I think one of the, the major transitions I had was when I had, when I was finally finished at BYU, I had, I'd been studying philosophy for four years and I, I specifically chose to study the Enlightenment period and specifically how that affected the American, the early American philosophical thought, like the philosophy of the Declaration of Independence and Thomas Jefferson and how that affected constitutionalism. And because I wanted to understand more about what the context of the scriptures and about what, how they meant in, in that particular day and age. And my, the last month as a, as a student there, after I had been spending all this time reading all these philosophers, and I think I've talked about this before, but I ended up reading Elder Maxwell's book, The Enoch Letters. Mm-hmm. And it's only about a hundred pages. And I would highly suggest everyone to read this. I mean, it's such, it's such, you could read it on a Sunday afternoon. I mean, it's, it's a pretty easy read. Get through it. You can read it pretty quick. Even if you don't read fast, I don't read very fast. And for those who are familiar with C.S. Lewis, it's written kind of in the same rhetorical style as the screw tape letters, but it's written in a one-way conversation to another person, like as if he's writing letters to a friend. And it describes the journey of one man as he comes into contact with Enoch for the first time. And, and then the progression about how Enoch builds Zion and eventually to be taken up into the air, right? And we only get one person's conversation, but just because of how it's written, we can contextualize what his friend in a far distant land is saying to him. And Elder Maxwell does a really, really good job of being able to, I didn't know this at the time, but he was heavily involved in politics, in political philosophy before he became a religious educator. And so he knew the philosophical language. He knew that whole conversation that I've been studying for three, four years. And so when I read the Enoch letters, I mean, anyone can read it and, and really pull a lot of meaning out from it. But if you've been studying philosophy and you know the language and you know the, the specific ideas from, from conservatism and liberalism and socialism and communism and libertarianism and anarchism and everything in, in between, you can see the little nuanced arguments that he's identifying in, a, in an effort to show that every political ism is insufficient. May, they may hold certain truths, but they are completely and holistically insufficient and don't carry the entirety of the gospel of Christ. And so because of that, as I was reading over this, I was <laughs> I was a little bit upset because I just spent three, four years <laughs> reading the best minds of like political philosophy. And in a hundred pages, Elder Maxwell had basically just plainly shown how we would never come to true order, peace, justice, tranquility in anything until we just accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it was so plainly obvious to me. I was like, yeah. But anyway, I tell that story because the, the one, the main takeaway, the point that I brought out from there was this understanding that at every single day in our life, um, individually and as, as a community and as a, as, as a nation, we are always at a crossroads of the two great commandments to love God with all of our heart, might, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. And what, what became completely apparent to me when reading Elder Maxwell's book was that with the minute we choose to dismiss the two great commandments, it's in that very moment when all political philosophy begins. Because I recognize that everything from Aristotle, everything from Socrates, basically, 
they've all assumed a society of individuals that don't love God with all their heart, might mind, and strength, and don't love their neighbors themselves. So how do you establish justice and ensure domestic tranquility and provide for the common defense and do all of these things with a society that doesn't love God and love their neighbors themselves? And it's in that moment political philosophy begins. Because when you do love God with all of your heart, might, mind, and strength, and you truly do love your neighbor as yourself, individually and as a community and as a nation, the utility of government, as we know it, completely falls away. And so in section 98 and 134, there we, we have the reasons for government, that man would no longer be a slave to each other, that we'll be able to punish the offender, and that, and that we'll be able to rule, uh, rule justly, right? So that, that no one will be enslaved and everybody will be free in their rights. And each one of those three reasons that, that are given for why we have government presuppose that we don't have a society where we love God and love our neighbors ourselves. And so that's where constitutional law begins. And so that was the, the first recognition I had that the constitution was not a destination. It was a stepping stone towards a Zion type society. And, and, and I have to be careful when I say that because for, for those who are listening, you have to understand, I, I understand it. Everything that President Benson has said about the constitution. And I know I, I, I've read all of his books. Yeah, I think you and I both read all of his books <laughs> and, and every multiple times over were so, so ingrained in that narrative. But yeah, the constitution was never the destination because that was the most, that was the best document that could be created for that nation who had not yet fully loved God and loved our neighbors ourselves to embrace, to be able to create a spirit of liberty and freedom where we could have our rights protected that had existed. And yet, it still wasn't Zion, right? Because Zion is where we go when we do keep those two great commandments. All the rules change, all the utility changes, our worldview changes when we say yes to those two great commandments. So everything that kind of follows here in section 98 is acknowledging, as I see, is acknowledging what has to happen when we don't adhere to the two great commandments. And then the second half of 98 is really entailed for how do we transition to live a life where we do adhere to those two great commandments. You know, that that really brings to mind for me this discussion we had uh, quite a while back about, you know, starting off in simplicity, delving into complexity, and then returning back to simplicity, able to appreciate it better because of the complexity you just waded through, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like it's like when you're a child and you know you you go to your class and everybody says, "Well, you love Jesus and you you treat people nicely." And then you grow up and you're like, "Ah, eh, it's way more complicated than that." And and you go out in life and you get to this and you get more and more complicated and all these rules and stuff. And then you sit down and you're just quiet for a minute and you're like, "It's actually not more complicated than that." <laughs> <laughs> you know, right. it's it's the simplicity you you appreciate on the other side of the complexity. You know, you you talked about how the the constitution as a, as a stepping stone. I I do think that it it could be viewed as that. I also think that if you step on it and you wait too long, it's going to sink <laughs> and take you down with it, <laughs> so to speak. Right? You, you you've got to you've got to move. 
through. You know, I, I, I think of, I have in my mind this image of our garden where we put stepping stones out in there. And, and if it ever really rains really hard, like you, you have to keep moving across those stepping stones or else they're going to sink down into the ground. And uh, I kind of think about that as that analogy that, that you brought up simply because, you know, the constitution in and of itself can't bear the weight of an entire society that wants to move toward Zion. It can't bear that. You know, it, it's not a blueprint for that. It's simply a blueprint for trying to establish the things that it says that it is. And it's not what it, it's not anything it doesn't purport itself to be, right? Yeah. So right here in verse four, we, you know, we start off, it says, and now verily I say unto you concerning the laws of the land, for it is my will that my people should observe to do all things whatsoever I command them. And that law of the land, which is the constitutional law, was supporting that principle of freedom and maintaining rights and privileges belongs to all mankind and is justifiable before me. You know, so this is really interesting because this is Joseph Smith who is, as, is giving the principle of what he sees and, and of what God sees here through this revelation as the principle of determining whether a law is constitutional or not. Mm-hmm. And what that is, is whether or not that law protects the liberty, the rights, and the freedoms of all people. If it doesn't keep sacrosanct the freedom of all people and the rights and the privileges, it's not a constitutional law. And he continues, he says, I, the Lord, justify you and your brethren of my church in befriending that law, which is the constitutional law of the land. And as pertaining to the law of man... Whatsoever is more or less in this cometh of evil. I, the Lord, make you free, therefore you are free indeed, and the law also maketh you free. Nevertheless, when the wicked rule, the people mourn. Wherefore, honest and wise men should be sought for diligently, and good men and wise men you should observe to uphold. Otherwise, whatsoever is more or less in this cometh of evil. And I give unto you a commandment, that you shall forsake all evil and cleave unto all good, that ye may live by every word which proceedeth forth out of the mouth of God. Now, I've written a bunch of papers on this th- this particular set of scriptures um, mm-hmm. from a political standpoint, specifically from a civil in talking about philosophical civil disobedience, because this is a this is a fascinating passage of scriptures where, for the church's early history, they weren't always following what the government said and had been enacted through law. You know, even when the saints went out to Utah and were living in hiding. For over 10, you know, for, what was it, more than 10 years, they were living in hiding. And many of the brethren, like George Q. Cannon, we have pictures of him in, in his prison stripes, right? Right. Because they are not adhering to the laws of the government. You know, so we have to ask ourselves, how were they interpreting things like the 12th article of faith? How were they interpreting these, these laws that were being passed by government? And in the time and sphere, there's been an evolution in how the church has, has, interpreted these scriptures. And back during these days, this was more of a natural law kind of understanding where there was this natural principle that if you didn't hear to the natural principle, it didn't matter if you followed all the all the regulations that you needed to to make a law and to, and to make a law a law and have it start in the legislature and then go to the go to the executive and sign off on it. It wasn't about that. That needed to be done. But if it, it violated the principle, it was unconstitutional to get at, 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 you know from that point on. And as the church more progressed, especially after the 1890s and when, when the church started to more formally renounce polygamy and to follow the government and, be, and Utah became a state, then it was really at the turn of the 1900s where, you know, historians kind of laugh because it's, it's where the Latter-day Saints start to try to 
out America, the rest of America. Sure. Right. And it's where we, we become more American than everybody else. And, it, and it's, it's like, you think you're American? Well, I out America, you're America. Mm-hmm. And so it, there was this huge wave of nationalism that swept over the church in the 1890s and coming into the 1900s. And through that, there was a different definition of how they came to 98 from a more of a legal positivist point of view than in a natural law one. Yeah, you think you're American? My scriptures talk about the Constitution, so there. <laughs> right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so I was, I was looking at verse 2 because and 3, and I'm just going to touch on this a bit, but uh, we've talked before about you know covenants and, and how it is that, that we come into a covenant and who is this covenant for? And it, it's really for us. You know, the Lord doesn't need to deal in covenants because he just is. Right. And, and everything he does is, is a definition of who he is and, and, and truth. And so he doesn't have to, you know, pinky promise. Right. Right. <laughs> but, you know, in verse two and three, there's, I, I, I highlighted all these words that, that are very like strong language where this revelation comes out and, and is just like trying to establish credibility with the people that are, that are hearing it to understand the character of the Lord and, and what it is that he's trying to, to posit in their mind. So we've got in verse two, they're recorded with his, this seal and testament. The Lord hath sworn and decreed that they shall be granted. Therefore, he giveth this promise unto you with an immutable covenant that they shall be fulfilled. You know, it's just like you, you, they crammed every possible word of, of promise and binding into these, these few sentences here. And I just thought it was so fascinating that it would be um, such, such strong language, like right from the outset, like the people need this assurance that the Lord is there. He's going to keep his promises you know, you don't have to worry about whether uh, what the Lord said is going to happen is going to happen. So there's like that constant reassurance that's part of this covenant here. Yeah. Isn't that interesting that we're the one who really needs the assurance and it, and it comes out in strong language as yeah. if there's this implied distrust that God is completely engaged in us, right? It's It's this... I, I don't know if it's the distrust that he's going to punish us or if this distrust that he's going to want to do something else, but there's this an inherent distrust that the covenant that I see covenant making trying to overcome that that's the utility of the covenant making. You know, God doesn't, God is God. He's in, he, he's, he's the perfection of all the good attributes we talk about. And to, he's honest and he's trustworthy and he's, He's not a liar, right? That, that, that's the Satan. Satan was the liar from the beginning. God's not that way. And so when he comes out and he says, my word is good. I, I'm here to, to be here with you and to suffer this with you. And we're the distrusting one. And so it seems to be that covenants kind of become a modality by which we begin to learn how to trust in God. And I think a lot of ways we then turn that covenant from being that mode of trust that we learn how to trust where we then make the covenant the thing in itself and then we start treating it like a checklist gospel and it's like as long as i'm doing this thing then i expect god to fulfill his promise and, and you gotta like keep his you know keep his feet to the fire because yeah. you know god's a god's a tricky one and if you don't keep god's feet to the fire he's he's gonna try to like get out of the covenant yeah, he he's made, constantly right? looking for loopholes in the contract <laughs> right <Yeah. laughs> And that's just not what's going on here. Yeah. So yeah, I like I like what you said there about this really strong language that, that's there with uh, with that. 
But with the Constitution, um, you know, it's it's fascinating because James Madison, I think it's in Federalist 51, said that if men were angels, there would be no need for government. And, and I think that's a fascinating idea, especially in light of what we're talking about here with the two great commandments, that if, if men were angels, there would be no need for a Constitution. And yet, yet there's this paradox that presents itself because John Adams comes out and says that our constitution was made only for a religious and a moral people. And so it's like there's this paradox that if you're an, if you're angelic and religious and moral, you don't need it, but it's only going to survive if you are. Right. And, and it really shows the, the paradox of what life is like when you don't adhere to the two great commandments. We can struggle. We can engage ourselves in the cause. But the true and ultimate point of our I, I don't I don't want to use the word success, but the ultimate point here is the love of God and the love of neighbor as ourself. And that's where the focus is. That's where the the glory, the success, that's where we're gonna meet the good stuff, right? And then we have this this transition at, at the end of this. Where we come into verse 16, well, I'm going to use 15 because of uh, what, what you brought up. For if you will not abide in my covenant, ye are not worthy of me. Right, so this is 15. For if you abide not in my covenant, ye are not worthy of me. You know, we've talked about this a lot, Ben, right? With worthiness, with yeah. covenants. We're always already worthy, but the construct of our unworthiness is of our own making. And so God's bringing us into this conversation with him. He's rock solid. He's never wavering. We're the wavering one. And it's our fallen perception of unworthiness. And then he comes into verse 16. Therefore, renounce war and proclaim peace and seek diligently to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. Yeah, that renounce war and proclaim peace is a hard one. It's even harder when you're doing that during wartime. It's easy to renounce war and proclaim peace when there's no war going on. But when there's a war going on, and so that's one of those things. So, so I'm interested in your thoughts, Ben. But on this, it seems almost shallow or superficial if verse 16 only means that we should do the best that we have when we're in peacetime. And, but when we're in war, we're in war and we just engage in war. It seems for me, 16 has only ever meant anything if we actually promote this during the time of war. But yet the, you have your Captain Moroni's and we talked about this with the previous podcast. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. as I said, I don't think I mentioned it or that you mentioned it, what it was, but if anybody's interested in, in a more full detail, I think we went on for like a full hour and a half on section 98, but we have a two part series for Latter-day Peace studies when we were doing Book of Mormon last year. So it's, I, I didn't look up the episode, but it's the, it's on uh, Alma 46. You'll see a part one and a part two. So part one will go through all the details of, of war that we go through here. And we, and I think we talked about this a little bit, but it seems to me that verse 16 only has strength and isn't just virtue signaling. If you do this when it's not popular to do this. And the only time I see it's popular to do this is when you're not actually in war. Well, it kind of goes back to what we've talked about with the Sermon on the Mount, is that un unless this really means something 
and is an imperative in our daily lives and isn't simply relegated to a yeah, but type of thing, then there would be no point in the Lord giving us the standard whatsoever. You know, and and when we look at this word renounce, this is a this is a pretty strong word to put before the word war. So if you you know, I'm pulling up the 1828 dictionary like I do sometimes. Renounce, to disown, to disclaim, to reject, to refuse to own or acknowledge as belonging to, to deny, to cast off, to reject, to disclaim as an obligation or duty, to renounce allegiance to cast off or reject as a connection or possession, to forsake. Um, anyway, you know, it's, it's all, it's all very strong language as complete, a complete rejection of war. Okay. So we can't, it's, you're not rejecting something if it's never offered to you. Right. So there has to be an offering of war. There has to be this, uh, temptation, so to speak, right? Or, or there has to be this chance, and then there has to be a rejection of it, um, not just as a means, um, but also as a mindset. Um, not just that we actually, you know, uh, go out and march to war, but that the war that we fight in our minds, where we otherwise someone to make them our enemy. That is something that we also have to renounce. And often I think that it becomes a a very difficult proposition to renounce something unless you're, unless you're turning to something else. Right. And, and so I like the pattern that it gives right after this, it says renounce war. And so what are you going to do? You proclaim peace. So it's not just a rejection of the world's ways, but a an acceptance and adherence to the way of Christ. And so I love this. This verse 16 is probably one of my favorite verses in, in all of scripture. It says, seek diligently to turn the hearts of the children to their fathers and the hearts of the fathers to the children. And I see this as so many things. Um, this really calls up Malachi uh, references, um, but there's a, there's a ton packed in just this these few phrases right here of hearts of the children to the fathers and fathers to the children. We just brought up before simplicity and complexity. I talked about how, you know, as a child, you, you grow up and you, you want to become like an adult. You're always aspiring to that. And then as adults, you're, you're always longing for that simplicity of childhood, right? And, and Christ um, invites us to become as little children. And so uh, I think that this is talking about not just that process, but also the healing of the generations from children to parents to children, that these relationships that end up causing so much trauma and and harm both in families to individuals and then in turn to society, this is where we start with the healing. 
this is where we start with the proclaiming of peace. We can go and we can, you know, make petitions and protest wars or whatever like that. But if if in our homes or in our relationships with each other, uh, especially our children, there isn't peace, then we're not really proclaiming peace. We're not really renouncing war. We're just fighting on another front that's in the dark or in the quiet that's not in public. Um, and so I think renouncing war has to be much more than just um, a political move, right? This is this is a matter of the heart, and that's why it says hearts of the children to the fathers and hearts of the fathers to the children. I like that word healing that you talked about. Yeah, in in my nonviolent studies, I've I've come across dozens of times from a, a psychological point of view that just innately humans have the the inability of creating and perpetuating violence on another human being. There's actually a psychological trigger in our brain at birth. Call it the light of Christ, call it evolution, call it whatever you want to will. But there's this trigger that we have that we cannot commit violence on another human being. So what the brain has to do in order to commit violence is it has to be able to see the other person as something less than human. And one of the ways that we do that primarily is through language. And so this is one of the reasons why before a fight will ever start or when someone goes to war, the enemy or the, the perceived other will always be given a name. There's always name, name calling and, and usually derogatory name calling, right? Is because it's the, it's psychologically, it's the brain's trying to diminish the other person's value to knock that person out of human status. So then the brain can then engage in violence upon that person. And what I, th I think is fascinating here with you talking about healing is this idea that part of turning peace, th this, this proclaiming peace and turning towards peace is the healing that happens when the hearts of the fathers are seen by the children and the hearts of the children are seen by the fathers, that there's a humanizing that's going on there. That, that that trauma that that is then expanded out into all of our relationships because we are all children we are all parents and because of that it, it's a call for us to be able to see the humanity in in each other because when we when we see the humanity in the other just psychologically we cannot commit violence upon each other and so I think I think it's you're right it's one of my favorite scriptures as well just because there's so much there that you, we can unfold that in so many different ways. We could probably spend <laughs> the next hour on it. <laughs> we really could. The, the lead up to that scripture is, is interesting. Um, we talked a little bit about it, but um, the context here back in 13, whoso layeth down his life in my cause for my name's sake shall find it again, even life eternal. Therefore, be not afraid of your enemies. For I have decreed in my heart, saith the Lord, that I will prove you in all things, whether you will abide in my covenant, even unto death, that you may be found worthy. So this even unto death phrase, I, I really uh, underline because that is uh, probably an allusion to Mosiah 18, right? Where Alma has the people at the waters of Mormon and he talks to them about the covenant that they would abide it even unto death. And then verse 13, you know, for my name's sake, this just gets tied to that concept of worthiness because we talk about uh, worthiness being something where you're, you're like 
dirty from sin. And so then you can't have a relationship with God because of this dirtiness, you know, but, but the fact is it's your relationship with God that, that cleanses you of that. Um, so if you posit that worthiness keeps you from having a relationship with God, then you can never have a relationship with God because <laughs> you can never become worthy because you can never have the relationship that makes you clean. Right. So, um, back to this concept of that, that worthiness is this mindset, um, or rather it's that, it's that Christ part of us, right? Because earlier it talks about for my cause, for my name's sake, right? For the sake of the name of Christ that you've taken upon yourselves, that worthy part of you, that's the part that you abide in, right? And that's the part that's not afraid of your enemies. Why is it not afraid of your enemies? Because you don't have enemies. You've renounced war, you're proclaiming peace, and everyone's your family. Um, and when you see someone as as that close, that relationship to you, it, it brings that humanity into perspective. Yeah, great point. Really great point there. And, and I love being able to tie Christ into it because what Jesus Christ exampled, I, I, and I love Richard Rohr and he says, Christ was not Jesus's last name. I think that's an important distinction we need, we need to remember. Christ is a title. Sure. And it's that anointed king is, it's that anointed one. And what is he anointed to do? But it's, it's to be able to, to suffer with. And, and if there is any suffering for, it's the suffering for our sense of just injustice, right? We've talked about so much before. And that when we take upon ourselves that name Christ, what does that mean? But that we're going to be doing exactly what Christ does. He's suffering with us. Hence, when we go back to Mosiah, and I love that you brought up Mosiah 18, that the command with baptism is to mourn with those that mourn, to comfort those who stand in need of comfort. That is what Christ does. That's what that atonement is. It's that suffering with us, right? And, you know, and there's certain atonement theories that end up wanting to posit suffering for, but it gets to be highly problematic. And so when we, we, we have that personal relationship with Christ, when realizing that he's there with us, um, th- these scriptures stand out more vibrantly. When we see that uh, we become participants, not just in the conversation, but in the very act and drama of God, and so we're playing that part there, and we're, we would do, we are doing what God would do if He were there with us personally as well. So then, when we start getting in here to, and this is far more legalistic than than I like getting into, you know, the the first time, second time, third time, fourth sure. time that you're you're attacked. But I think when we're going to pull out of these scriptures is that it's not necessarily the number of times you've been attacked. It's it's almost more like a a statement of absurdism. Yes, for us to recognize of saying like the first time, the second time, the third time, and then the fourth time, and then in just forever and ever. And so, anyway, let's get into that. But it says, well, I guess first contextualize it. So when we go out and we try to renounce war and proclaim peace, we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to deal with those who come against us? How are we going to deal with those that violently entreat us? The Sermon on the Mount comes out and talks about turning the other cheek. And so here in DNC 98, there is this amazing uh, example that, that Christ gives us about how we are to bear our our infirmities and the the attacks that we receive. And he says now, and this is verse 23. Now I speak unto you concerning your families. If men will smite you or your families, 
once, and you bear it patiently, and revile not against them, neither seek revenge, ye shall be rewarded. So, Ben, this is, uh, this is so powerful because if, as I've talked about nonviolence, and, and I, I know Yuzu, you've talked about nonviolence on social media, the single most commonly asked question right out the gate. And if I've been asked it once, I've been asked it. If I had a dollar for every time someone has asked me this question, I could retire. <laughs> but, but the minute you start talking about nonviolence and, and it's, and the associating conversation of pacifism. But when you, minute you start talking about nonviolence, the very first question that always comes up is, well, so you're just going to let someone come into your house and, and abuse your wife and steal your kids. Right. That's always the, that's always yeah. the first go-to question. And I, I know whenever that question comes up, I'm dealing with someone who has done absolutely no reading or research or has never been uh, confronted with any, any kind of literature on nonviolence. Cause this is one of the very first conversations that's, uh, that's addressed and talked about. And once you understand the principle, you may not agree with nonviolence, but your conversation changes. And so I love that in section 98, it goes right to the heart of that question. It's like, hey, listen, concerning you and concerning your families, right? <laughs> if anyone yeah. comes against you and you bear it patiently, revile not. Now, revile not, that comes that Sermon on the Mount language because that Sermon on the Mount language, that revile not means do not respond in kind. Do not match like for like. Do not revile against them, neither seek revenge nor reward. But if you bear it not patiently, it shall not be counted unto you as being meted out as a just measure unto you. And again, if your enemy shall smite you on the second time, and you revile it not against your enemy and bear it patiently, your reward shall be a hundredfold. And again, if you shall smite you a third time and you bear it patiently, your reward shall be doubled unto you fourfold. Okay, so so there's three times. There's three times here. Now, one of the things that I know I, we've we talked about, Ben, and, and maybe you can talk to this a little bit too, is this idea of, well, if someone's going to come in and just going to kill your family, you know, that's it. You know, they, they do that very very first time, then the game over, right? So, wh- how do we reconcile that here with verse fourteen that we read? Is it verse fourteen um, or verse thirteen? It says, and whoso layeth down his life in my cause for my namesake shall find it again, even eternal life. Therefore, be not afraid of your enemies, for I have decreed in my heart, saith the Lord, that I will prove you in all things, whether you abide in my covenant, even unto death. Do we take this seriously? Are we, are we to take this literally? Is this a literal statement that we are to take, or, or what are we really even getting at with all of this? Well, it, if it's not literal, then the the story of Christ, his apostles, um, don't you know, isn't all that useful to us, um, because the whole point was that Christ was supposed to exemplify that. Um, yes, this this is a question that's that's brought up quite a bit. It's a question that when I examine it in terms of what I, how I would really approach it or, or how I might ask the same question, it really comes from a place of fear. 
And the fear is that fear of loss or fear of not fulfilling your responsibility, like as a protector, right, of your family. Fear that something is, is going to happen out of your control. And so now, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying that everybody that defends their families is, is doing it out of fear. Um, really, what I'm getting at is that anytime the conversation is brought up of how can we deal with this situation in a nonviolent way, in a way that Christ has invited us to deal with, and the response is, that's impossible because X, Y, Z, that's not a statement of of faith, right? That's not a statement of how is it possible for me to follow Christ? I'm going to think about how I can do that. It's a statement of that's it's a rejection of there's no way to do that, so I'm just going to turn to what I know, right? And and I'm again, it's not um, it's not saying that everybody that would defend their family is is doing so out of fear. It's that the refusal to even enter into the conversation of it or the rejection of how we might follow Christ in this way, um, the rejection of, of even starting that conversation that I see um, when I examine it as always approaching the question with fear rather than faith. Yeah, that's a really good point. I've, I've had to learn in my life that there are many things that I thought I was living by faith that was actually living by fear. And I learned that fear and faith are sometimes only a breath of a difference. And I've really had to analyze and deconstruct some of the things I thought I knew about myself. And in reality, I back up and I'm like, oh, <laughs> yeah, that was far more fear than that was faith. I need to work on that. One of those moments came for me. I, I was reading a book years and years ago about uh, it was from Michael Nagler. He was a he's an emeritus professor from UC Berkeley. And he he started a a, a nonviolence peace group there at uh, at Berkeley. That you, I, th- I think it's even an official group. You can uh, you can get a certificate for it or something. But he wrote a book about nonviolence and an introduction to nonviolence. I was reading, and one of the things he mentioned I thought it was really fascinating. I thought it was a little hokey at first. Um, but it was this uh, idea, he said, that when you finally commit, when you finally commit to nonviolence, and that you're not going to respond violently in any situation, and you put away all of your weapons of war, and you put away everything, and you commit to this, there will be a time when you basically go through a withdrawal period. And then something will happen where the brain will immediately become creative in creating solutions and how to reconcile with people nonviolently. And I thought, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's a lot of frou-frou stuff, right? (laughs) And so, you know, it's interesting, you know, you know, me growing up, I grew up around guns. My, uh, my, my father was more into guns than I was, and and he used to work at uh, bullet manufacturers in Southern California growing up and and he was around guns a lot and he used to go out shooting a lot and I grew up with them but I was never a gun enthusiast and never went out shooting a lot but uh but they were always around and you know when I got married I you know my father gifted me um gifted me one of one of the kind of heirloom you know passed this along um down to the ages and and so I had a couple of guns that he he gave he passed along and I, 
I kept him around. You know, you keep him locked up, you keep him safe, you keep him out of reach. Um, I, I, I've had gun safety courses and that whole thing. And occasionally when, you know, my wife would wake me up at night and she'd like nudge me. She's like, Hey, I heard something downstairs or out of the kitchen or something. You know, I, I get up and I kind of like sleepy eyed and, and like once or twice in my life, I'd like, I'd like go over and like pull out the gun. And I'm like, I'm not, this is so stupid. I'm not even going to do anything. I knew I wasn't going to do anything with it. And I walk around the house, you know, thinking it was really, you know, depending on, on my, on my wife and how <laughs> nervous she sounded or how nervous she sounded with me being half asleep, which is even dumber for me to do what I was doing. Um, Nothing ever happened. And so there came a time where I was like, I'm not even going to rely on this anymore. And I, I put everything completely away, completely, completely away. And, uh, and I no longer have them. And, you know, it's, it's funny for as little as I have ever relied on it, as little as I have ever depended upon it, it was, it was never, I was never a gun enthusiast. I, I was not like a, I have, nothing against defending myself. That was just, it was kind of what it was, but I wasn't enthusiastic about it. But by putting that away, by, by beating my proverbial swords into plowshares on that one moment, Ben, for three days, for three days, I had more anxiety and depression and fear of being a, a, a failure as a father, as being a failure as a provider, of being a failure as a husband, that I wasn't protecting my family and I wasn't, I just, I had completely given up my role as a man to my family. It was the most, it was the most bizarre experience of my life because I had never had attachment to that tool that at least I thought physically or psychologically, but apparently I did. And so that racked me for three days. And finally it was on, uh, it was on the end of the third day where all of a sudden within like five minutes, all of that disappeared. It, it like Alma 36 shadow. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't praying. I'm not going to torment I, for three days. <laughs> I was racked with torment, but I, 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 I'm not praying about it, but I just, it, there was so much anxiety. Yeah. I can, I can still feel it now thinking about it. But the minute those, that, that time, those like almost like 72 hours to the, to the, to the minute went by, all of a sudden I felt all of this burden leave me. And I had never been filled before that moment with so much courage and so much, uh, love and compassion and mercy. All of the fear that I had ever had in anything was gone. And even to this day, it's like, it's gone. There's no reason to fear what anyone else is going to do. It's all of that was taken away. And what came into its place was this really strong desire to reconcile in these moments. And so I started to imagine within the next week, I started to imagine like ways that I could reconcile it. And so I was like imagining scenarios of people breaking into my house and like how I could deal with them and how my pers personal personality would deal with that. And then at that point I'd remembered what I read from Nagler and I was like, man, that, that landed really hard for me. I learned right there that, uh, that for instance, Martin Luther King with his nonviolence group, when he, when, when he was going through and they were doing the civil rights push, he had to do training sessions with, with all of the youth and with, with the leaders because you have to train yourself to see things differently. Mm -hmm. Like it, it doesn't come, we're born with reality being one way. 
And when we accept this kind of more nonviolent, this Section 98 kind of way, this goes against all logic that we are told is responsible. Right? And it takes time for us to be able to work through this. You've been attacked three times. And it says, And these three testimonies, if you haven't reviled back, shall stand against your enemy if you repent not, and shall be not be blotted out. And now verily I say unto you, if the enemy shall escape my vengeance and shall not be brought into judgment before me, then you shall see to it that ye warn him in my name that he come no more upon you, neither upon your family, even your children's children, unto the third or fourth generation." And then if he come upon you and your children of the, th- your children's children into the third or fourth generation, I have delivered thine enemy into thy hands. And then if thou wilt spare him, thou shalt be rewarded for thy righteousness. And also thy children, thy children's children into the third and fourth generation. Nevertheless, thine enemy is in thine hands. And if thou rewardest him according to his works, thou art justified. So what this means is that if you turn the other cheek, even a fourth time, it's rewarded to you as righteousness. However, if you choose to deal with it and, and, to, and to violently revile back or to violently defend yourself, then are you justified. Then is the evil not counted unto you as evil. But the Lord then kind of washes everything clean. He's like, you revile back. I, I think when we, we gave the story before, I'd, uh, I'd given a personal example. When I was a kid, there were some kids who used to pick on me and, uh, and they finally one day came along where I decided I'd had enough. And so I turned around and just started fighting back real heavy. And when my dad came home and I, I told him the story about how I was getting picked on, um, he's like, all right. So he, he went down, he's going to go talk to the parents. And I was sitting there with my mom and I said, mom, I didn't tell him that I started fighting back. She's like, well, that's something you need to go talk to him about really fast. So I ran down and like halfway down to where my dad's at. I said, hey, dad, I didn't tell you that I, I had also gotten a fight. I also started fighting back. And he's like, well, I'm not mad at you for that. If you defend yourself, you defend yourself that way. He says, but I can't go out and talk to them anymore. And so, and so he came back. And so it was this really interesting moment of recognizing that, yes, it's okay that you did that. But now you've kind of we've kind of lost the moral high ground here, even if they started it, mm-hmm. that I can't really go address this as strongly anymore because they're simply going to say, well, your kid fought back. And I'm going to say, well, well, your kid started it and nothing's going to work. Right. And so that was one of the first lessons I heard. I learned about Section 98, about the power of how this works, that as soon as we revile back, the Lord is like, all right, well, I can't do anything about it anymore then. You know, verse 27 really stood out to me this time. And these three testimonies shall stand against your enemy if you repent not and shall not be blotted out. It it talks about how we respond to another person um, attacking us in one way or another as, and if we do it patiently, it says, if we bear it patiently and we revile not, that's a testimony. And that's really interesting. In some of the earlier podcasts we did, especially the ones um, where we talked about Ammonihah back in the Book of Mormon, um, we talked about about testimony and witness. Um, and you know, we often say the term nonviolence um, because in in English uh, there may not be a very good word for it. Now I know that um, you know some other uh, traditions that have really developed the. The concepts have have come up with some better words for it and such, um, but I, I do I do still like kind of how we settled that. 
I mean, it doesn't work in in all scenarios, but I do kind of like how we settled that with testimony or witness. Um, and so I like here how the the violence is met with testimony, and and that's how that's the response. That's the Christian response to violence is testimony. Um, and what's so interesting about that we talked about linguistically is that you know in Greek and and Semitic languages the root of the word martyr is is the same as the root of the word testimony or witness um, such that you know over in verse 14 even unto death right that that our response to how others enact violence against us is a testimony even unto death uh, that that is potentially the ultimate end of our testimony and following the path of Christ taking up our cross that's what we commit to I mean maybe we don't we don't know it but that's what Christ invites us to do when we follow him isn't that interesting because also the the root there for witness is also the same root for martyrdom for martyr the matero there is it's the same root martyrdom and witness and uh and they're right there so when we have another testimony another witness of jesus christ here at the book of Mark, we're literally seeing the nonviolence of christ here it's another it's another it's another witness it's another testimony of the nonviolence of christ in this conversation because christ goes to calvary to suffer for us as opposed to reviling and fighting us it's a suffering for and a suffering with as opposed to fighting for or fighting with. And we're called to come into that same conversation with Christ. So as we've said it before, that what Christ did infinitely and eternally, we're, we're called to participate in finite and temporally in this life for each other. This, this suffering and sacrifice narrative of how we deal it and how we are able to mourn with those that mourn and comfort those who stand in need of comfort. Yeah, I like that, uh, that testimony there. So on the on the fourth time we have uh, again on verse thirty one. Nevertheless, thine enemy is in thine hands, and if thou rewardest him according to his works, thou art justified. If he has sought thy life, and the life, and thy life is endangered by him, thine enemy is in thine hand, and thou art justified. But this is the law I gave unto my servant Nephi, and thy fathers J Joseph and Jacob and Isaac and Abraham and all mine ancient uh, prophets and apostles. And again, this is the law that I gave unto mine ancients, that they should go not out to battle against any nation, kindred, tongue, or people, save I the Lord commanded them. And if any nation, tongue, or people should proclaim war against them, they should first lift up a standard of peace unto that people, nation, or tongue. And if that people did not accept the offering of peace, neither the second nor the third time, they should bring them their testimonies before the Lord. Then I the Lord would give unto them a commandment and justify them in going out to battle against the nation, tongue, or people. And I the Lord would fight their battles and their children's battles and their children's children's even until they had been avenged themselves of all their enemies to the third and fourth generation. I think it's interesting that he mentions Nephi because if we go through, we can actually document that there are three things that Laban did um, against Nephi. And, and to show that there's this uh, law that comes from Leviticus about these three times, about if, if you've come against, someone's come against you three times, then, then are you justified or by the law to be able to, uh, to defend yourselves violently? And so Nephi's action there would not have been one of righteousness as per 98, but it would have been one of, it would have been a justified action. So I think it's kind of interesting that they brought up, uh, they brought up Nephi in that conversation. 
Right. There, there's no condemnation of self-defense here in this section. That Really, the, the way that this is laid out, and, and you know, it does get a little little detailed in particular with the, you know, the instances and everything like that, that does seem a little bit belaboring of the point, right? But, but it's all a rhetorical device to drive home this point that we're going to get to here over in, in verse 40. Um, that there's no, again, no, no condemnation of someone who's operating in self-defense, but there is an invitation to the way of Christ here that the Lord, the Lord tells us that this is, this is the way, right? This is the way of righteousness, the way towards sanctification, even though you can still be justified in, in your actions, I have something more for you that you can have. And only by going that way, do you really understand and know what it is? You have to experience that. This uh, concept here in verse 33, where it says, they should not go out to battle against any nation, kindred, tongue, or people, save I, the Lord, commanded them. The reason this is so interesting to me is because I cannot find a single instance in the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, a single instant where the Lord has explicitly commanded his people to go to war. Now, we might see some uh, cases of those in the Old Testament. Um, but what's so interesting about that, there's a lot of context to be thrown in with that, right? That's that's a whole nother podcast that doesn't even go with Come Follow Me. Right? <laughs> there's a lot to be said about the Old Testament and how it... Uh, treats violence. Let's just say that. In the context here that we get bringing up Nephi, this is evoking latter-day scripture, right? Re- restoration scripture. There is if you really if you really go through it and look at at how each of the wars or battles are explained and put through it, especially in the Book of Mormon, which is probably the prime example, there is not a single instance where the Lord explicitly commands his people to go to war. He may justify them in it. He may. But there's not an instance where he tells them, okay, everybody get armed and go out to battle. And if you want a, a more particular treatment of that, if you doubt um, my assertion there, you can go back and listen to the podcast we did on those, especially the war chapters in the Book of Mormon. And I think we do a pretty good job of, of explaining that concept. Yeah. And also in bringing in Nephi and that, that example about how Nephi becomes an archetype, this situation is archetypal in that, that relationship and in, in what Nephi did to Laban when he first comes back to, to Lehi, Lehi does a sacrifice, right? And the sacrifice yeah. there is, there's been several scholars that have talked about how that sacrifice is very much more than likely due to Nephi's killing of Laban, that it was a, it was meant to try to purge the evil that that had brought upon them. And also the fact that the sword was brought back, that the sword of Laban features very prominently through the rest of the Book of Mormon and even into the latter days when the, the I think it's the, the three witnesses end up seeing it, that, that these things become archetypal as to the problems that would later come. When, when Nephi leaves, once they're in the promised land and he leaves, he takes the sword of Laban with him and the plates with him. And we often wonder like, well, why would they be so upset 
that Nephi and his family left? Well, it's because he took the sword with him. And, and so he's always, he's always in this, uh, sh- like shadow area. Nephi's always in the shadow area with his brothers because he, he's the only one who's killed somebody. He's the only one who takes the sword. He's the one who fashions all their swords after the original one. And so you see all of these violent narratives and how there's themes that carry through the Book of Mormon about how and why the Lamanites dislike the Nephites so much and, and see the Nephites as the violent warmongering ones, whereas the Nephites see the Lamanites in the same way, right? So this sword analogy, this archetype of Laban and, and Nephi and the sword of how this transpires becomes the othering story that kind of floats through the rest of the Book of Mormon is one of the single causes for all of the the animosity and bad blood between the two people. So it, yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating. It is a fascinating discussion in the context of the Book of Mormon, and and you know we get tangential to it here with with DNC ninety eight. Um, this the whole concept is is a very um, prominently commonly discussed, you know, within the church, and and I think the particularities um, and the explicit um, imperative or an invitation of the Lord here in section ninety eight is often glossed over. Um, in favor of of a much more aggressive stance that I I would like to see us as Latter Day Saints uh, really uh, reconsider. Yeah, yeah, that's a it's it's fascinating. You know, the Community of Christ, which was the the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ Latter Day Saints. Uh huh. They, they renamed themselves uh, the Community of Christ around uh, around the year two thousand, I believe. And it takes so much effort for us to try to reimagine a new world without violence. You know, their church for since uh, 2000, I think since 2019, they've been going on a big, like, like their thematic push is to imagine nonviolence and to imagine a world of nonviolence and to imagine how we can begin to act nonviolently. Because it's one of these things that we have to recognize that we're not going to come to these principles overnight and so- suddenly solve all of our tendencies and everything that we've been inculcated by socially and culturally and politically and even religiously of accepting these things. And it's going to take, repentance takes time to be able to repent beyond those narratives and to see the world differently, to see God differently, ourselves differently. And so I think that's, 98 is a is extremely strong when we realize just how far outside of our cultural periphery it's planting its flag. Like the standard that this is talking about is so far beyond our scope of normalcy sure. that I remember reading through this first when I was, uh, you know, 20 years ago, when I was first kind of coming into grappling with what this was really saying. And I even remember thinking to myself 20 years ago, like, that doesn't mean what that means. That can't mean what right. that means. Right. Right. <laughs> I remember telling someone that. I remember reading this and being like, yeah, but you know, this can't really mean that. It's not really practical. So this is really what it means and explaining it completely away. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, you'd brought up 40. I think that's a good one to read. And so on to the second and third time. You know, I'm going to go with 39 first. And again, verily I say unto you, if an enemy has come upon you, the first time he repent and come unto thee, praying thy forgiveness, thou shalt forgive him and shalt not hold it any more as a testimony against thine enemy, and so on into the second and the third time, and as oft as thine enemy repenteth of the trespass wherewith he has trespassed against thee, thou shalt forgive him until seventy times seven. And I think that's a beautiful scripture because that really does come, as we said at the beginning, to this concept of absurdism. 
that this is that this is these standards seem so just absurd to what is real and practical. Just like you said, <laughs> like your old self used to say, and what I used to say, like this doesn't even make sense to how we would possibly handle our our the way we are. But just imagine, just for a moment, what would happen if, as a as a church culture, we were known for this. What, what would that change of the way that the world viewed us if they knew us primarily by our turning the other cheek, that we were a peace church that had gone out and actually lived this kind of peace with our fellow man and with each other? And I think before we readily dismiss these things out, you know, just right out, right out the gate, take some time to recognize and say, if we taught this and we strove to live this, and this is something that we fostered and we taught our children and they taught their children and it became a part of our culture, how would this change the way that people saw us and that we interacted with people? And how would that bring peace into our lives? That's how I had to start thinking about it to really kind of start coming around to accepting these things. Because you're right, when you just come at it right out the gate, you run flat into a wall of cultural, uh, of American culture, where this does not, this does not jive with American culture. This is not what we teach as, as American, uh, you know, as, as American uh, exceptionalism and rugged individualism and defending yourself. And, and now this does not jive with that. This is something different. And so we have to start imagining for ourselves a different kind of world. We can't expect to go back to like a dog to its vomit, to borrow from the Book of Mormon and from Brigham Young. We can't go like a dog to its vomit and expect to have something new. If we're going to grow into something new, we have got to start to recognize that we have to see things new, which means that we have to be comfortable with things being different. I, isn't that a phrase from the chosen is like, get used to different Oh yeah, or something yeah. like that. Get used to different. It just, it, it has to be the thing that we have to, to start getting used to. So do you have anything else to say about uh, 98? Yeah. Yeah. I, I love how it ends. I love how it ends because it's talking about them, those enemies, those people. And the way that it phrases this is, is so fascinating that, that it, the culmination of all this our concern would be for our enemies. Our concern would be that they are healed, that they receive forgiveness. And vengeance shall no more come upon them, saith the Lord thy God, and their trespasses shall never be brought any more as a testimony before the Lord against them. And and I just love how that's a culmination of this concept that that our charity has extended finally out to our enemies such that we have we have sought to and realized the reclaiming of them. I love it. All right, Ben. Well, we, <laughs> I knew we were going to spend a lot of time on 98. <laughs> so, and there's so much more I could have talked about. But okay, so section 99 and 100, we're going to leave that to, to the listeners to, to, to read. It's a page yeah. and a half or two pages. And, you know, take the next 20, 30 minutes, Ben, and... <laughs> I don't know how to talk about section 101 <laughs> in 20, 30 minutes, but, but I, I knew we needed to talk about uh, 98. So section 101, this is where we finally have Joseph recognizing what's going on in Missouri. And so a little bit about what has happened in Missouri and, and at least provide some historical context that, uh, you, that 
others might not have, yeah. is that when when Joseph sends the missionaries down in 1830, so the church is organized in April 1830, he sends the missionaries within three to four months down to Missouri to start converting the the Native Americans, the the quote unquote the Lamanites. Yeah, and you know, so they have this new Book of Mormon in hand. They're going to go down and and give everybody the Book of Mormon, the history of your people. And along the way, they end up running into this little city called Kirtland, and Parley P. Pratt, who's one of the missionaries that are going out down to Missouri, happens to know the local congregational, uh, one of the larger congregational leaders there named uh, named Sidney Rigdon. And so they preach, and over time, a lot of Sidney's congregation gets baptized, and almost immediately, there's more members now in this little city, Kirtland, than there are over in Palmyra, where the church was just organized. But as as everybody moved down into uh, Missouri, these missionaries moved down into Missouri in 1830, it, it only lasted for a couple months until they started realizing that this whole baptize the Native Americans thing was just not going to work. Um, the way the government was working, the way that it, there were just so many factors that, that pushed against this uh, this from happening. So now you have these missionaries down there thinking like, what do we do now? And then it's revealed that this is where the New Jerusalem is going to be. So they, you know, it becomes a hub. They stay down there. Well, a little bit about the economy at the time. So this is just one of the, one of the things about their, their, the time and place is there's these things called boom towns. And a boom town was a, was a early frontier way of being able to grow cities really big in the frontier where you would often have some frontiersmen who would go down into, uh, uh, a frontier region. And once they were out there, they could kind of carve out the wilderness a little bit and, and get a place, a city laid out where they could, uh, they could begin to grow. Prospect and then you'd the have, land, yeah, prospect the land. And then you'd have these, these investors from back East who would come in and see what you'd done. And then, and then they would lay out a bigger grid and really start to do some city planning and get you involved in it so you know so that you had a, a say so and you would sign over some of the rights to the land so that these developers could come in because once you bring in more people into these little towns all of a sudden you start you know now you have a blacksmith and now you have uh, a shopkeeper and and now you, ha- you know, all of a sudden you know, everything begins to grow and a rising tide raises all ships so these investors would go back east they would end up finding a bunch of people with money who wanted to move west. And they say, hey, I got this cute little town here. It's on the up and up. Buy cheap. Your property values are going to explode. Then you can do whatever you want to do. So these huge investments. So people are investing in these things. And so overnight, these te- these towns would go up overnight, basically. Within six months, you'd, you'd have all of this new investment coming in. These towns would boom. And so this was one of the the investment opportunities that the Missourians had at the time. And so when the Latter-day Saints came in, they started to take a hold of some of these boomtown investments. And in doing that, so they would buy up portions of land. And, and so suddenly they would have like 30, 40% of, of the, of the city or of the, of these investments, but they wouldn't be able to have enough money to buy all of it, but just like 30, 40%. So now when you find out that these Mormons have this, voting block where, where they all vote together. So they may only be 40% of the total population, but they all vote together. And what that means is that when it comes election season, they're all going to vote for only who supports Mormons, which means that as you bring in more of a pluralistic uh, demographic from back East with all mixed opinions and everything, then the Mormons are going to carry the vote. Even if they're 40%, even if they're less than half, they're still going to be able to carry the majority of the, the vote. The other thing that happened was is that once 
a significant number of Mormons moved into these boom towns, investors would not be able to recruit more people into these towns as well because there was this really weird religious zealot group that lived in these towns that nobody wanted to live around. So nobody, they couldn't get investors to come in as well. So a lot of the Missourians and the frontiersmen started to lose out on their investments. You know, they'd been working for these things for five, 10 years. And with the Mormons moving in at the rate that they were moving in, they started to mess up the equilibrium of how these boomtown economics worked and how people were doing their investments. And so these Missourians and the investors started losing out on things they'd been planning for for the last five, 10 years, the whole reason they'd come over to these places. And so this was one of the first things that the Missourians didn't like about the Latter-day Saints. In fact, the majority of the reasons the Missourians didn't like the Latter-day Saints was not because of their religion. Nobody really cared what you believed. It was the fact that they came in on such large numbers and that they dominated voting blocks and they detracted from future investors coming in to buy up the land that really caused the initial problem. Because now your property value that you were expecting to go up is now worth less than it was before. Now, the Latter-day Saints see this as, as a godsend because the Latter-day Saints then report back to Joseph saying, Joseph. It used to be a dollar, you know, I'm, I'm not being exactly accurate with the price here, but it was be, it used to be a dollar an acre. Now it's 10 cents an acre, right? Because the property values had dropped because the investors couldn't get anybody to come in to buy up the boom towns. And so the saints would go out and would start buying up all the land for cheap, thinking this is a really great time and investment, how, how beneficial God has been to the Mormons. But the Missourians have just completely lost out on five to 10 years of investments because of the thoughtlessness of the Latter-day Saints in coming into these communities to see how it would affect the people who were already there. So when you mix all of that with from 1830 to 1833 in Jackson County, then you have this one moment when in July of 1833, W.W. Phelps is, you know, he's a kind of a famous Latter-day Saint. He's the one who penned uh, praise to the man that we sing all the time. And he ends up becoming the editor of the local newspaper. And this, uh, in the newspaper, they had, I always forget the name of the newspaper. It's something like the, the evening and morning star. In fact, I think that's what it is. It's the evening and morning star. And so W.W. Phelps ends up publishing this one paper in July of 1833 that says that the Latter-day Saints are not opposed to having free black men come into their, into their communities. Well, at the time, Missouri was a slave state. And so when you see all of the economic disparity that the Mormons are bringing into the region, you see the political instability and the disenfranchisement that the Mormon voting bloc is bringing in. Then when you add this third layer that Mormon missionaries in Canada are baptizing Canadians in mass and sending the Canadian converts down into Jackson County to immigrate to Jackson County, all of a sudden the Missourians are saying, why are Canadians moving into our town? And they're like, they're the Mormons. And so it was, if you can imagine this, they thought they were being invaded by a foreign army and by a foreign religious, a foreign religious army. And so all of these things came up. And so when W.W. W. Phelps printed this paper saying that the Mormons weren't opposed to free black people coming into their settlements, the Missourians saw this as the Mormons bringing in all the freed slaves to be able to further disenfranchise Missouri voters because you know to, to bolster the Mormon voting bloc. And the Mormons were already bringing in people who weren't American and weren't adapted and enculturated. 
So they didn't see this as too outlandish. And so it exploded. And this became the number one thing that the Jackson County uh, Missourians had finally had enough. And this becomes the, the, the dynamite that they used and it just explodes. And this is what gets them all riled up and they start kicking the, the Latter-day Saints out of, out of, out of Jackson County. W.W. Phelps ends up within a day or two, he ends up writing a retraction. He's like, no, 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 no. That's not what I meant at all. And he kind of swings the pendulum the other way. And he's too little, too he's late. He's like, yeah, too little, too late. But he swings it all the way the other way. And he, he's, he's like, you know, black people are slaves and should always, I, I, I don't remember exactly what he says, but he, he comes to this place where he, uh, he's like, Black people should be slaves forever. We don't believe in emancipating slaves. It hasn't slaves. aged well. It, it hasn't aged well. Let's say it that way. But it was too little too late. And so that's what causes the saints to be kicked from Jackson. It had nothing really to do with their religion. They were seen as religious zealots. They were seen as as religious fanatics. But the people in Missouri are like, it doesn't really matter. You don't need anything to us. We're not going to do anything to you. But it was all of those other political, economic, and cultural issues that came at play that they finally kicked them out. So this is in light of that. So section 101 comes about when finally news of all of the, the saints being driven from Jackson County in the, in the winter of 1833 and how they end up in Clay County, which is north of Jackson County. And so that's really where, where section 101 begins and, and kind of the, the, the context that we're going to understand this in. Right. So the, it, he goes into quite a few things here about um, you know, explaining the the causes of of this, and and then um, how is Zion going to come about, and and trying to explain that oh, you know, even though all this has happened, the Lord's in control. Um, you know, things are still going to happen the way they're supposed to, but may not be within the time frame that you think it's supposed to happen. And so that's a lot of what this section gets into. Um, a lot of great little things in here. I particularly really liked uh, verse 9. It says, Verily I say unto you, notwithstanding their sins, my bowels are filled with compassion towards them. I will not utterly cast them off. And in the day of wrath, I will remember mercy. So this is a, a fascinating um, sort of treatment of how it is that uh, – or. or description of an experience that I know many have had where um, it's it could be described as like a day of wrath, right? You're, it may be a moment where um, someone is, is completely lost, feeling punished, um, feeling like uh, God has abandoned them, um, feeling that wrath of God, right? That's the, the real wrath of God that you might uh, talk about. And then him saying in that day, like in that moment, I will remember mercy. I just kind of like how that's phrased here with telling the people that even though they may feel the Lord, you know, has explicitly told them, hey, this is the consequence of your actions. <laughs> if you had, you know, followed the the things outlined in 98, now not that they necessarily had those, but, uh, you know, they had they had the scriptures. They they knew what Christ taught about how to respond and, and treat your enemies. You know, if you'd followed that, then a lot of these things may not have happened the way that they did. But even even though they did happen the way that they did, and you feel punished because of your sins, I'm still with you, and I will show you mercy, and let me show you how this can come about. 
So I just uh, I like how how that's directed there to the people over in verse 13. And they that have been scattered shall be gathered. This is almost a beatitude format here. And they who have mourned shall be comforted. And all they who have given their lives for my name shall be crowned. Therefore, let your hearts be comforted concerning Zion, for all flesh is in my hands. Be still and know that I am God. Zion shall not be moved out of her place, notwithstanding her children are scattered. They that remain and are pure in heart shall return and come to their inheritances, they and their children with songs of everlasting joy to build up the waste places of Zion. You know, some sections back, we talked about uh, Ezra, the prophet Ezra in the Old Testament, and how the, the Jews had been attacked and and taken into Babylonian captivity, and then later had returned. And, uh, you know, Ezra was one that kind of went and, and regulated things and, and was building back up. And then Cyrus uh, the Great said, oh, you know, build your temple again. So this is all sort of... Um, after that pattern, right, of of viewing the the saints and their experience here are being compared to the Israelites and how they were taken into bondage, and then they will return and they will rebuild in this place of Zion. And so this is the promise, right? And and constantly sort of going back to Zion as a, a literal city that's to be built. Um a, a a specific place that they're supposed to gather. This was very specifically and literally conceptualized within their minds at the time. That's how they saw the fulfillment of these prophecies was in this literal sense. And I think that even though over time they may have, there may still be this sort of strain and longing to that is the promised blessing that, that these things will literally come true. There's been sort of an evolution of understanding how it is that the Lord will would fulfill this promise that um, even if it's not fulfilled at at sort of a a community level, it can be done at an individual level. So, yeah, I like that idea about the individual level and not the community level because that that really is where it always starts. At least when I think about Zion, I'm always thinking about this community that's going to exist, the city, this place where everybody's doing their thing, and and so it really puts the accountability off of my shoulders onto everybody else for this city to thing to work. But when I have to start addressing myself. <laughs> That's where things get difficult. Hmm. <laughs> That's where the real work begins, right? Because for as difficult as it is to convince someone else of something, it's it's even more difficult to to recognize just how much of ourselves that we really have to change. And it is hard to to always recognize that. So th- that beginning point. I like the apocalyptic vibe that it gives in verses 23 through basically 31 but it's talking about how you know this millennialist kind of idea where god's going to come and prepare for the revelation which is to come in the veil of the the covering of my temple and my tabernacle which hideth the earth shall be taken off and all flesh shall, shall see me together so all of their work that they're trying to get geared towards is really towards this second coming theme where where they expected Jesus to come but any day. And every corruptible thing, both man or of the beast of the field or the fowls of the air or the fish of the sea that dwells upon the face of the earth shall all be consumed, and also that of elements shall melt with fervent heat, and all things shall become new that my knowledge and glory may dwell upon the earth. 
I just uh, uh, when we take that as a metaphysical statement, you know, it sounds it sounds ter- <laughs> kind of sounds terrifying <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but we have we've talked about how the, these things make, especially apocalyptic literature, makes a lot more sense when we talk about it epistemologically. That these things are about how we perceive them happening. That these the consuming and this whole melting with fervent heat where things become new. This has allusions to like baptism where, where there's the death of the old and the coming forward of the new. That's done in water, but this consuming is going to be done by fire. So there's, there's going to be even a new way of being that will come through through what I have prepared for you. And in that day, the enmity of man and the enmity of beast, yea, the enmity of all flesh shall cease from before my face. And in that day, whatsoever any man shall ask, it shall be given unto him. And in that day, Satan shall not have power to tempt any man. So there's Satan showing up, and uh, and so I always put you know pull that out. But I, I love this when we're talking about Satan the, as the accuser, and about in that day, that voice in your head that tells you that you're not good enough, that you're not worthy enough, that thing which belittles you, which speaks against you, which is the narrative that is easier to believe something bad about you than something positive and worthwhile about you. That thing in which we accuse each other of things which really are just a manifest manifestation of our own perceived insecurities. That's a hard one to recognize, man. That that's that's a jagged pill to swallow. To realize that the things that we typically hate in others the most are those things that a lot of the times are secretly held that we perceive those things about ourselves. Those are all those things incorporated into the idea and in the title of Satan as the accuser. And the accuser, that thing which m- makes everyone unworthy. And yet the advocate with the father is that thing which is bringing everyone into, into his rest. And there shall be no sorrow because there is no death. And in that day, an infant shall not die until he is old and his life shall be as old as the age of a tree. And when he dies, he shall not sleep. That is to say, to say in the earth, but shall be changed in the twinkling of an eye and shall be caught up and his rest shall be glorious. And just like you said, Ben, in verse 38, some beatitude language, and seek the face of the Lord always that, that in patience he may possess your souls and also have eternal life. In verse 39, with the salt of the earth, um, it, it talks about, it says, when men are called into mine everlasting gospel and covenant with an everlasting covenant, they are accounted as the salt of the earth and the savor of men. They are called to be the savior of men. Therefore, if the salt of the earth lose its savor, behold, it is thenceforth good for nothing, only to be cast out and trodden under the feet of men. You know, so this savor we've talked about with the Beatitudes before is that when Christ talks about the salt, that we are the salt of the earth, he talks about it in terms of flavor, about, about it, you know, the, the savorness of it, the flavor of it. When the fact is, is that salt is just salt. Salt, salt is, uh, a basic mineral, it, it doesn't lose its flavor. Salt is just, you know, I, I ended up getting a, a salt jar. I think I said this at one point <laughs> about a year ago, I got this salt jar, you know, like Himalayan pink salt or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, and I looked in and the expiration, it says, you know, this, this product expires in like five years. It was like 2026. <laughs> and, and I had a, I had a good chuckle. I'm like, man. Salt's hundreds like, of millions of years old. <laughs> right. But it's like right here in five years on my shelf. Like who would have, what the timing on that one, right? <laughs> and so salt is just salt. But when we start realizing that the concept here of a salt of losing its savor is not about salt. It loses its saltness. 
it's that we stop perceiving that thing which is the tasting of the gospel. You know, so when we talk about, you know, there's no way to be able to describe what salt tastes like. We've talked about this dozens and dozens of times. And since we can't taste and talk about what salt tastes like, if all of a sudden we lose the savor of the gospel, if we're no longer tasting the salt of the gospel, what good is the gospel anymore? Well, it just, it doesn't do anything for it. And so that's what the Beatitudes are. It's bringing back the, the, the flavor of the salt to the gospel to where we're beginning to taste the gospel itself. So what happens um, with salt when it loses its savor is that, that it, it gets mixed with other things. And so it, it no longer has its uh, you know ability to to contribute to the unique flavor or bring out the flavor of something. And so this is interesting in terms of when we talk about purifying something, right? Because this is the the going the other direction. Salt is is being contaminated um, so such that it can no longer provide its its unique property or ability to bring out the the flavor of something else so so again this is like the opposite direction of what we were just talking about with the the purification process that that happens um i thought it was interesting in verse 30 you read this in that day an infant shall not die until he is old you know going before this there shall be no sorrow because there is no death um this is just sort of a a particular point personal to joseph smith he had quite a few children die in infancy. Um, and I, that's not happened to me. I, um, it's difficult for me to imagine. I know people that it has happened to. So it, I can see how this would be of great comfort to him, knowing that this that was just a temporary condition of, of our state now, but that, um, that that will all be alleviated and that... Uh, There'll be a time when that no longer has to be part of our experience, that type of sorrow, because of, uh, I'm sure, the the pain that is always felt uh, with that. And again, Joseph Smith had that happen many times. Him and Emma lost children. And so um, I think it's interesting that it's just pointed out there that the infant shall not die until he is old. Being able, you know, just being able to see a child grow and learn and develop and um, experience life. There's just nothing like it, you know. And and when that doesn't, when a child seems to have lost that capability, like they die young, right? That that's that's devastating. Just from our experience to to see that that potential or that experience from our epistemological sense wouldn't ever come to pass right and so the lord saying here that know that that will be a reality that that will happen you no longer have to um you'll no longer have to experience that type of sorrow seems like quite a comfort yeah you know there's this uh, there's this movement called mormon transhumanism I don't know if anybody's, you know, if, if you've heard of this, Ben, um, it's, it's, it's a group of about 8,000 people, I think now on Facebook, the last time I looked at it, but it's this whole movement of Mormon scholars who are toying with the idea of how science and how, and how computers and the digital world is going to begin to interact with genetics mm -hmm. and how, and how that infusion and how the connection of technology and genetics is going to fuse. And what, if anything, that's going to do to our religious narratives. 
Yeah. And, and so, you know, for any listeners who haven't really heard about this, you know, we have, we have things that are coming up because of technology about what do we do when we can download our consciousness into a computer? What can we do when we can take our own cells and re- and reconstruct new bodies, download our consciousness into a computer and then take that consciousness and re-put it, and put it back into a newer body? What are we going to do when we have like maybe nanotechnology where it goes through and it starts to attack bad cells to where we can have youthful regeneration and live for hundreds of years because of technology that takes care of the aging process. What's going to happen to the religious narratives that, uh, you know, so this was a, a new one that happened about a year ago is that in China, they were able to breed, take the, take the genetics from one female mouse and impregnate another female mouse. And it produced viable female mice offspring that themselves could go out and have babies right and so now females are actually now impregnating females and so this was going to come into a new technology that within the next maybe 75 years two women can might be able to go in and cvs with a with a test kit and impregnate each other and have each other and have babies with each other which then throws on this narrative about the necessity of the plan of salvation narratives between men and women um, we've always taken it as a genetic absolute that only you, you absolutely genetically need a man. But now we're going to see that technology is being able to show that God, something God has already known that two women can do this. Anyway, this kind of stuff is technology is already beginning to kind of getting us to question some of these religious narratives because that are built in, in, in certain genetic, uh, genetic arguments and, uh, and naturalistic arguments. And so I, I often wonder when I when I read thirty that an infant shall not die in his old age, but shall be lived to be the age of a tree. And when he does die, he shall not sleep. That is to say, in the earth, but shall be tra- changed in the twinkling of an eye. I absolutely know Joseph Smith is not seeing this whole Mormon <laughs> transhumanist kind of thing going on, and like and like the modern technological age. But even so, it's an interesting thing to say considering the technology that we're looking at. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So. So. Anyway, yeah. that, no, I think I've that's thought just about a lot of those things. I'd be interested to see what the what that that the discussions in that movement <laughs> go around. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Very, very cool time to be alive. So in section 101 and moving along, there's this really long parable about the watchman in the tower. Uh, unless you have something to say about it, Ben, um, I'll just commit it to the the reader to, to go over it and to pull out what they will from it. Do you have anything specifically about it? No, I, I think I would if um, I had spent more time going through it. I, I do think it's significant and there's a lot there, but um, I don't think that it's going to make sense for us to spend uh, time on it because once we start in it, 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 it'd be a lengthy discussion. Um, and so I don't, I don't think, I think we could, we can touch on some other things and, and, and go ahead. Okay. Um, yeah. And for me, one of the last things that I had to talk about here was in verse 68, where it says, nevertheless, I have said unto you in a former commandment, let not your gatherings be in haste nor by flight, but let in all things be prepared before you. Um, and then he goes into a conversation from verses 70 into 74 about purchasing the land, but not about having everybody run into the land once it's purchased. And I think this is really interesting going back into the history of why there was contention to begin with, that it was because they were purchasing land for pennies on the dollar because of the economic de- destabilization that their presence caused. And so, you know, this is speaking to some of those things. Don't run in there and overrun these communities. Don't run in there and do these things that are causing these things. Buy, buy the land when you can buy it, 
But maybe, maybe there's even talks about, you know what, don't take advantage of your neighbor just because the property values are dropping. You think that maybe God's blessing you because, you know, you're there and you just ruined their whole prospect. Uh, learn how to reconcile with your neighbors, right? Yeah. And then, and then in verse 75, there is now already in store sufficient, yea, even in abundance to redeem Zion and establish her waste places no more to be thrown down. Were the church who call themselves the churches who call themselves after my name willing to hearken into my voice? Hmm. Yeah, I, I I've always come back to this scripture. This one is one that I've I've marked and remarked and lined and underlined and everything. Whenever I hear that Zion can't be built, it's too wicked. It, it, it's too this. It's too that. Jesus needs to come to to kill all the bad people. Whatever the argument is, we can't build Zion because of that one guy. Yeah, because that thing, that guy, that rule, that one law, guy's that, president or that guy's president. So that means we can't do it. Right. <laughs> but it, but simply if those who are willing to hearken to the voice of God and to follow the beatitude path, Zion would be established. And that really puts that on our shoulders. And then we turn here and, and, and I can see kind of Joseph's uh, flavor in doing so, but we, we return kind of to that constitutional vibe again, don't we then? Yeah, so you know we, we get into this uh, these verses that are often quoted in terms or in context of of a constitutional discussion, and um, I think this goes back to um, one of the podcasts that we did with LDS Liberty, where we had a discussion about principles of constitution and and um, you know how those fit within our not just our broader theology, but uh, in a broader scriptural context. One of the things we discussed was how, you know, here here we have these things where the Lord says, uh, the constitution of the people which I have suffered to be established. And then later he says, um, you know, for this purpose, have I established the constitution of this land by the hands of wise men? And so we have these statements where the Lord is, is uh, appears to be like, explicitly and personally endorsing the constitution saying he established it right and so this is often brought up as oh the constitution is the celestial standard because the lord established it right but uh, really that just raises the question of well does the lord only ever establish celestial standards or does he give us other standards from time to time and um, it seems pretty obvious in scripture that, uh, you know, back in 98, one of the, one of the things, uh, one of the scriptures says, or one of the verses as we're transitioning th- through things is the Lord says, I give unto man line upon line, precept upon precept. And so one of the examples we brought up was, you know, first Samuel chapter eight, where the people um, are saying to, to Samuel, Hey, we want a King. We want to be like other nations. Um, Samuel says, well, if you have a king, this, 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 and this are going to happen. And um, they said, yes, that's what we want to happen. <laughs> so give us a king. And Samuel says to the Lord, they want a king. Um, Lord says, that's fine. That's what they want. They've rejected me as their ruler so they can have a king. And so then we have we have divinely appointed kings. Uh, Samuel goes out and receives revelation from the Lord specifically on who he's supposed to anoint as a king. And we have these divinely mandated kings. And so 
then we can come back and say, no, the Lord gave us this monarchy. He divinely appointed Saul. He divinely appointed David by revelation as to be our our government, right? And so we have a similar situation here with the Constitution where the Lord comes out and says, "I, I specifically endorse this. But just because the Lord comes out and establishes something for a particular purpose doesn't mean that it's a celestial standard and the end-all be-all of, of his purposes, right? Yeah, that's a really great point. Yeah, and, and I love the comparison there with 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 First Samuel because, yeah, the, the Lord did – the prophet found the king, right? The prophet – it was prophet, uh, prophet found. The prophet anointed the king. And the, the people thought that was because of their righteousness when the irony of the story is that Saul was chosen in the people's wickedness that they had rejected the Lord's servants to rule over them. Yeah, it's, it's a fantastic comparison. And then to realize that with the Constitution, that which the Lord has created, yes, the Lord has created just, just like he picked Saul, but it was because of the people's wickedness that he picked that system of government and that and it wasn't another yeah really interesting uh point there um according to the laws which and, and i think it's interesting because he's going to the 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 laws that are are framed you can still see joseph grappling with this americana that he's born into because at his in his time uh christianity and americana had become so entwined and the, the national identity, not the law, it's not to say that Christianity was the law or that the law was Christianity, but that they had entwined the identity of America with Christianity and this, this kind of American Christianity with the identity of America so strongly that the early Latter-day Saints really did see themselves as the, the pure embodiment of the Republic, which was kind of ironic because when the Missourians come after the Mormons, kick the Mormons out of Missouri – they're the ones also invoking the spirit of 76. (laughs) The Missourians actually saw the Mormons as invaders and their whole narrative was that they were repelling and getting rid of an invading force like the, like the early colonialists kicked out England. And so they saw themselves as the embodiment of the Republic too. So it's interesting how both sides of them saw that they were the same thing that the other person saw themselves as. But uh, here with the, we we have the, the Lord had established the constitution by the hands of wise men who he'd raise up for the very purpose and he'd redeem the land by the shedding of blood. And then we come into another, we have another parable. One of the last things I wanted to bring up, Ben, is here in verse 91, it says, he's talking about that, uh, it says in actually in verse 90, and in his hot displeasure and his fierce anger and in his time will cut off those wicked, unfaithful and unjust stewards and appoint them their portion among the hypocrites and unbelievers. <laughs> That sounds delightful. But then in verse 91, he says, even in outer darkness where there, there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. I just, I found this really interesting because he goes through and he's talking about mayors and governors and presidents of the land that if, if you, yeah, these are all government parable, officials that he's condemning to outer darkness. It's wonderful. Yeah. Right. <laughs> It's not where I was going with it, but that's funny. <laughs> okay, okay, go ahead. <laughs> Actually, I kind of like that better. So maybe we'll just kind of roll with that one. But, but, but it's interesting because outer darkness, we typically think about it and we reserve for the, the sons of perdition, 
Sure, and and sure. and those and the sons of perdition have to follow a very specific kind of standard of knowing Christ, being brought into the very presence of Christ, having that special witness of Christ, and then turning completely therefrom. Yeah, this is clearly like a hyperbolic here. Yeah, yeah. So this is it seems like a proto a proto understanding of outer darkness that he's invoking here, as opposed to uh, the idea that he finally lands on and that uh, and the, he we preach and know of outer darkness today. Right. Do you have anything else on uh, on section one one that you wanted to cover? Uh, no, that's all that stood out to me so far about it. You know, the a lot of this other discussion you just is in this context of, you know, how is it that they're supposed to go about um, operating within the system of government that exists? All a very fascinating discussion in in terms of the historicity of the church, um, especially in in the eighteen hundreds as things go on. I know that's something you spend a lot of time uh, studying in terms of like the relationship between the church and and government and and views of the Latter Day Saints on on government over time and and how that sort of evolved. Um, I even, as I was reading some years ago, the journal of my great 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 grandfather who lived through this time as an early member of the church and it is very interesting to see sort of his commentary from time to time and it's all very typical mormon view and commentary on government from from time to time you see it over the decades just how it how it evolves from this you know oh we're we're trying to be lawful abiding citizens but you know the government isn't protecting us and so then we have to get away from it and then they're going to attack us. And so we're just trying to live our religion. So the government's not really legitimate anymore because they're not protecting our rights. And so there's this whole evolution, you know, and obviously it goes beyond that. But uh, you just kind of see that sort of brewing here, these ideas and how they're going to uh, kind of the seeds are being sown here and how this is all going to sort of bear fruit later in in the history of the church is is an interesting discussion absolutely absolutely well ben i don't have anything else uh myself and so <laughs> i'd like to thank everybody for uh for for sticking around and listening and and hope there was some stuff there that uh, you're able to pull out and it was interesting for you too there's a lot of moving parts that make uh make it available for us to be able to podcast and and to take the time to be able to to make these and again you know we've said it before but uh, but j- just so much thanks to the editors that we have to Kyle and to Catherine they spend a lot of time through the week to be able to make sure these are edited and put together and and sounding good and without them this wouldn't happen and with Lindsay with everything she does with Latter Day Peace Studies and making sure all the content is there daily and uh, and with all the co- with all the commentary that she adds to that is is it <laughs> i wake up every morning excited to see what new thing is going to get posted what new quote is mm-hmm. there I, it's been going on for a year and a half i still get excited by everything uh, that she puts together so there's just a lot of moving parts to this uh, to this labor of love that uh, and so grateful for everybody who contributes to that and of their time the means and so thank you again but uh, but until next week i am Shiloh Logan i'm Ben Peterson thanks for listening